Freaks, and welcome to Radical Research. Tim Hammond, you know Tim Hammond, right, Hunter? I know the name. He solved the riddle of the intro mashup snippet one that our friends is indeed Pink Floyd's own several species of small furry animals gathered together in a cave and grooving with a pict. So thanks, Tim. Uh, Friday, also a big day here at Radical Research headquarters. A new album by Norway's Monus comes out. Like in the woods, I think Monus will probably have their own episode one day. Oh, no uh, doubt. Are you, are you buying or dying on this Friday? Uh, I hope I'm buying. <laughs> <laughs> I would hate to die on a Friday. <laughs> there are very few mistakes on Rick Rubin albums, right? Very few. It's likely there are none. I mean, I don't think Rick Rubin was into happy accidents with his productions. No, they're very deliberate. There's zero accidents, and it's clinical, yet it never stretches into that coldness that you get with things that are generally clinical. I think what Ruben is after is the essence, like strip away everything else and get down to like the, the raw DNA of a band and then get that on tape. And usually with his best stuff, it's like, yeah, it's, it is that, but it's also not ruining the band, like not stripping right. them away of what's important. He, well, no, no. In fact, it's like stripping away everything that's not important and, and accenting everything that is crucial to the band. Right. Right. A lot of people tend to think that Ruben is almost too precise, I guess, too dry, too punchy, maybe just kind of too, um, too deliberate in what he does. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah. Too calculated. Calculated. But I, I like what he does simply because it gives you sort of that fresh focus take on whatever he's doing. And, right. and I think the stuff that we like by him, you're kind of glad he came in at those moments, right? It's a timing thing too. Very much so. I guess it'd be akin to like Bob Rock coming into Metallica's world. Absolutely. So we thought we'd look at our favorite Ruben produced albums. If you haven't guessed, that's what this episode's about, but not just that, but kind of as a way to underscore his impact on these works that we're going to be talking about and focusing on, we wanted to AB those with albums directly previous to those, how he really had a knack for sculpting and focusing bands who might've at that point needed a little outside input. And I, I think that now is the time maybe to mention just as, as a function of, of our friendship and the conversations that you and I have had about music over the years, you and I are really into productions, right? Yeah, important. And, and one of the reasons that maybe we're less enthused about some contemporary metal records is they all sort of sound anonymous. You know, they all use the same drum samples. They're all recorded in Pro Tools and snapped to a grid. And, um, they're all quantized. But like you and I tend to celebrate productions that have character and maybe they aren't technically perfect. And I'm thinking of albums like Black Sabbath Born Again, which is <laughs> by any sort of conventional metric is not a well-produced record. <laughs> but, but, but that production helps define it. Another record for me, and I, I, th I know that you feel the same way about this record, is Morbid Angels, Blessed Are the Sick which gets a lot of flack from certain circles and may have inadvertently spawned a, a reactionary movement in, in Norway. Yeah. <laughs> but, 
but still that that production helps make that record what it is uh, and again we can lump in we have a triumvirate we've talked of this before we talked of it like two weeks ago we were just texting about <laughs> it i think you were listening to maybe born again you just texted me and said how yeah, much yeah, the album yeah. rules and we started talking about production you you talked about blessed are the sick as you just did now so we're repeating our conversations um but but also we're, we're getting old man it's gonna happen. Well, <laughs> and also leave scars. And old men don't listen oh, to scars, yeah. man. That's for the young at heart always, brother. <laughs> no, but leave scars is in there too, because that's that just thick, muddy, kind yes. of overbased thing that man. born again is. And um, you know, I wouldn't mind doing an episode and looking further into those because those are three quote unquote bad productions that I would never want those albums to be without. Ever. Yeah. Ever. We were thinking about doing a show on David Bottrell for this episode and also Python from the whole Norwegian thing. I guess listeners who know Python will know and those who don't, there's no use explaining it right now. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's called Wikipedia, folks. Python is Python. And like, yeah. uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do that one day. But we just thought of Rick Rubin. I, it, this handful of albums that Hunter and I both just worship, and I think that's fair to say worship. There's one, and we'll get to it later, that I've yeah. always worshipped, and I have come to an entirely new level of devotion. Very interesting. Ooh, devotion's yes. a good word to use. I think I know which, which one you're talking about. I think you do. Let's... And that was an unintended uh, pun, by the way. <laughs> fair enough. But... I wish I was that smart. For people that don't know, like this is, you know, this guy is one of the, probably the most mainstream and popular person we've ever covered so far in our 13 episodes. But, you know, everybody knows, I hope, that his early badass influential hip hop career spawned LL Cool J and Public Enemy Beastie and Boys, yeah. Boys and you can go on and on. And then later in his career, of all the people he worked with, bad and good, he worked with the mighty Johnny Cash, who needs no description. Nope. Um, so you probably understand what our podcast is going to be about, what it's going to be geared toward. We're going to veer into more madness and step a toe into the bizarre as we usually do. And we're going to start with Slayer. Slayer. Yeah. So we are, as Jeff mentioned, this is going to be um, a study in binaries because we, we want to take where these bands were before and demonstrate the ways in which Rick Rubin sort of harnessed their sounds, stripped away all the things that I guess he thought was unnecessary and really, really sort of bring out the, or drill down to the essence of these bands. And it's, it's a production thing. I, I, it like in terms of the actual sound, I imagine that there's much more to that because Anyone that has studied productions knows that there's like a psychological dimension to it. I mean, producers, good producers at least, have a way of getting musicians to think about the way or rethink about the way that they um, approach their own music. And I feel like Ruben um, was a really, really effective producer in that regard. Very um, good point. I would add to that too that I think he caught these guys. You got to remember all these bands are – in their 20s, probably every right. single member oh, yeah. at this point, uh, the ones we're going to feature. And, you know, they were probably just in the right creative stage to go, okay, we're, we, got, we have confidence in what we've done so far, but we also recognize that we can let somebody in from the outside and help shape the vision further. Right. And that's where we find Slayer, like an 85. It's hard to not throw out superlatives and hyperbole <laughs> here, but like... <laughs> Eloise is just pure darkness. Yeah, just the the, the sort of anti-melodic nature of it, the chaos, 
yeah, it's a true descent. And it's not like, there, there's literally a subconscious part of me that wonders if we like pick this episode just so that I would have a chance to play at dawn they sleep. Uh, yeah, maybe. So we're going to play that. Yeah, because Hello Waits, you know, just to kind of set it up for the for the Ruben type angle, Hello Waits was kind of a mess arrangement wise. I mean, Crips of Eternity. Crips of Eternity is the one I was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Crips of Eternity. Yeah, that that's um that's a bit of a jumble. And at dawn they sleep. You know, a lot of parts. Who knows if they were they were arranged perfectly? Maybe not, but they're awesome. I mean, don't they sleep as a his prime slayer, right? It is absolutely. It's a masterpiece. Without further ado, this is Slayer, circa nineteen eighty five, from Hell Awaits. Song is called "At Dawn They Sleep." Infernal. I mean, seriously, it sounds like it was recorded in a region of hell. One of the reasons I love the album so much is just not that sound we heard, but like the cover that depicts it so. I, it sounds exact like that's. I'm sure they recorded it there. Like I love that art because it, it's off center. Your eye doesn't go toward any one no. point first. Like it's most like chaos. Right. It's just. It's like it's like a, a frame in, in a film of finding out like, Oh my God, there's actually a hell with demons in it. Like, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I wish I would have lived differently, you know? Um, <laughs> anyhow, I think our, our playing Slayer's postmortem from 1986 will illustrate sort of the effect Rick would have on Slayer's sound. He came in and like he did with a lot of these bands we're, we're featuring, he also put them on his label. Yes. Very enterprising. Uh, he took Def Jam, redubbed it Def American and uh, started working with bands like Slayer. And I, what, you were pretty young when that happened. It was 86. But I remember when the news got out that Rick Rubin was partnering with Slayer and they were coming on in this like hip hop label, this rap label, you know? Yeah. And it was, 
it was the, the news wasn't taken badly in general, I think, but I, I do remember it being kind of weird. Like, what is this going to be? <laughs> you know? Well, and but you, I mean, it's the timing too. Like, I mean, hip hop was still young in 1986 and i mean and thrash metal was still pretty young in 1986 really they were yeah Um, they were both totally cutting edge and really exactly in their first era but like they hadn't actually yet engaged in a dialogue with each other so i can imagine it would be a a, yeah weird news yeah it was strange but um the results were amazing i'll never forget the first time i bought rain and blood when i'm sure it was the week it came out if not the day and um yeah I was already a Slayer fan. I threw it on and I just remember being like, you kind of already knew, like this is a masterpiece. Like this is going to be. It's, it's, actually, we're going to talk about a, a, at least a couple of albums that you and I, and this is not a word that you are going to hear Jeff and I bandy about carelessly, but like we think that at least a couple of these records are perfect. Yeah. yeah. This is one of them. Let's listen to Slayer's Postmortem and just get a feel for exactly where uh, they went. I think everybody knows, but. Try to keep it dawn they sleep in your mind as you listen to this. You might want to strap yourself down too. So it's Ruben. He's already, you know, pretty well versed in producing hip hop. And there wasn't a lot of parallels you could draw between hip hop and Slayer, but then there kind of were when you started to listen because that song has like this steady, unrelenting, bloodthirsty, rhythmic thrust that hip hop, the really badass hip hop had. Like not only Ruben stuff like Run DMC or Public Enemy, but early NWA. Yeah, and Schooly D. Yeah, and it's yeah. and you can just hear that that steady like it's metronomic, you know. And there was nothing metronomic on Hell of Waits. If you put a metronome <laughs> down and st- started it on any beat, 
you're changing it like every 17 seconds, you know, yeah. or, or five seconds. And this was just like a, that steady thing. This is like, yeah, I mean, hello. I mean, uh, rain and blood is the ultimate distillation of everything um, important to extreme metal. And it, and it manages to get it all done in 28 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a really, I mean, it's kind of a, a, a striking statement. Yeah. It's a quick, it's a quick murder, man. They clean up the scene. <laughs> they do. Yeah. And yeah. And that's, there's not much more, I, you know, we could devote a three hour show to rain and blood. I, I don't <laughs> love it that funny. much. I'm on, I'm definitely all for it. And, you know, we, we listen to postmortem, which has the, you know, the slower thing going on. Some of the stuff is, well, it's, easily the fastest that Slayer ever was just, you know, get in there and get out for like two minutes. I mean, that stuff is just throttling. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the, like to me, that six, eight beat that he plays in um, postmortem. Yeah. I mean, that is the most headbanging rhythmic device ever. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think about like necrophobics, nocturnal silence, like that's every song has that in it. It's probably one of the reasons I love that album so much. For and sure. Album, it, yeah. And it's the band's called necrophobic. So they obviously listen to Slayer. <laughs> you think <laughs> so the same year that rain of blood came out uh rick rubin was i think aware of this band Sawin. we all call it samane they were recording what was to be their third full length Sawin grim samhain grim it never came out of course um november coming fire would end up being the last album by this band before they changed lineup changed their name to danzig that's where rubin came in yeah so i samhain um Anybody familiar with Glenn Danzig's career um, knows that Sam Hain um, came out of the Misfits. Jeff and I were actually talking about this a little earlier about the trajectory of the Misfits and like, you know, Walk Among Us, amazing album. But then you get to Earth AD and things take a, a, a left-hand turn. And a rip definitely turn. toward the left hand. <laughs> yeah, no, no, things get darker, more ferocious, more metallic, more chaotic. It, it, and Jeff, Jeff made a good point. It was like Glenn Danzig just kind of like the early on, like on Walk Among Us and the earlier stuff, he didn't really need a producer, but at some point he just came unhinged. Yeah. <laughs> and he indulges all of those tendencies in Sam Hain. It is, it's some of the smeariest, just messiest, darkest music you'll ever hear. So. Yeah. Yet Initium, the first one was definitely a pretty close tie to Misfits in terms of right. spirit. It wasn't until the Unholy Passion EP that it really became more obtuse and gray and, and smeary. Yeah. And then November Coming Fire is just a descent sure. into hell. For sure. After Sam Hain, and like Jeff said, Rick Rubin was sniffing around, got an interest in them and heard something in them that maybe they didn't even hear in themselves. And so um, after Sam Hain, uh, Glenn Danzig and Erie Vaughn went on to form Danzig. And the first record, self-titled, produced by Rick Rubin, came out on his Deaf American label. And it will show a very different side of these musical personalities. However, I think when you hear the song that we're going to play, which is Possession, um, you will hear some stylistic ties, some, some instincts that, um, that are apparent in uh, Sam Hain's work, but definitely refined and dialed in. Um, as only Rick Rubin could do. And we're going to start with Lords of the Left Hand from the 1986 Samane Grimm sessions. We'll merge very quickly into Possession, which, as Hunter noted, does have some Samane elements, but you, you will hear the hand of Rick Rubin.
obvious to anyone listening the differences there I, I would like to talk about one of the at least perceived priorities to my ears for rick rubin which is a rhythm section mm -hmm. um and particularly drumming and drum performances um sam hayne not known for its sturdy timekeeping um <laughs> sometimes i wonder if london may is even like paying attention you know <laughs> or if he's even a drummer or, if he, or yeah, maybe he's just not even a drummer. Maybe he's just like really cool looking. You know, like, <laughs> eh, you know, it'll work. However, yeah, you don't have a lot of guy kids these days going, man, London May was a huge influence on me. <laughs> 
Dude, I, the reason I play drums today is because of London May, man. <laughs> oh, poor London May. Maybe I, if, like, know. you know, someone that just can't really play drums. I hear he's a very, very nice guy. I, do that. <laughs> I hear he's a very nice man. I'm sure, I'm sure London May is a lovely human. And we appreciate your service, London May, if you're listening. As um, you were saying. However, that, that stands in stark contrast to the drumming on the first Danzig record, um, which is helmed by uh, the estimable Chuck Biscuits. Um, anybody into hardcore knows Chuck Biscuits from DOA. He also played at it, it, it various times with Black Flag and Circle Jerks. He's a fantastic drummer. And, and an extremely uh, dependable timekeeper, um, as you can hear there. Powerful sound. But um, you'll hear this as, like, as a, a thread in all these productions. Like Rick Rubin, obviously, I mean, he focuses on a lot of things. I mean, it's a holistic approach, naturally. But I think you'll hear that he is demanding a lot of the drummers on these tracks. Yeah. Um, they, they, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot to coax a great performance out of Dave Lombardo. He's a <laughs> naturally talented guy. But his playing on Rain and Blood is punishing. You know, I feel like there was just an extra layer of intensity added to it. Well, it's also the drum sound that he gets. We, exactly. We well, it, it's completely unadorned. Well, like, we can't for, yeah, we can't forget the production is part sort of vision in terms of sculpting, but also part that engineering thing that it kind right. of gets into, which is just sound and quality of sounds and, and you know, using technology to sort of bring out the best of, of the instrument and, you know, give that shape, you know, just kind of that more hi-fi sort of like headphonesy thing. And his drum sounds were always amazing. But there, there's no smoke and mirrors to these drum sounds. Right. Like, right. I mean, the, like when you hear these drum sounds, it's like, that's what they sounded like when they were being recorded. Right. You know, it's like he just captures the actual sound of the drums. They're very roomy. They're right in the room. You're just. Yeah, ex exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and well, I, 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 I don't even really want to paraphrase because I can't remember what Andy Wallace said exactly. But I mean, it was something like Rick Rubin said, I want the drums on Rain and Blood to just feel, I guess I am paraphrasing after all. But Go ahead. <laughs> but paraphrase like, away. I want, the, I want the drums to be like a punch in the face. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and we're two people who we can, we can take it both ways. I mean, don't read anything weird into that. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> but we also like we also like our music drenched in reverb speaking of python or, or like the early king diamond and and that kind of stuff like it works really well to have a lot of like weird effects and kind of unnatural treatments made to, to music and instruments and, and performances right that that can create a whole world too but it's just ruben did a different thing ruben did that roomy live punchy stripped down thing and he did it so fantastically which is the whole point of this ab really you know? Yeah. Well, and like what is a record that a lot of people don't even know exists. Um, there's a, he uh, signed and recorded a blues band from LA called the red devils. Mm. Um, I, I want to say the record came out in 1994, but it, it literally, it was a live record. And uh, again, um, this could be, you know, mythology around it, but he, he thought they were so amazing live that the best way to record them was literally live. But you you kind of get the same effect from that band playing. It was almost like he said, you know, this is what I want them to sound like in the studio anyway, so let's just record them live. Right, right. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, even King Crimson, they would record their live shows, you know, every single night. I mean, Fripp, was, Fripp did that for a lot of reasons. One of them was to like, hey, if we capture something that works, 
we'll put it on a studio album. And they did, right. they did that for Red. They did that for Starless and Bible Black. I mean, they've yep. done it other times in their career. It's just about capturing that performance at its absolute peak where it just becomes this transcendental thing that, right. we're, all, that we're all looking for in all this stuff. Uh, so, yeah, the Danzig album came with a record deal with Ruben's Deaf American, just kind of like Slayer. Um, speaking of Slayer in 88, the same year that Danzig, the debut came out, Slayer South of Heaven uh, had come out. Uh, also, very heavy hand of, of Rick Rubin there, almost more so in terms of like drum sound and dryness. The drums are almost the loudest thing on South. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's a, it's the drier album of the t- of you know that and yes. Ring of Blood, and it works great. It was it was a success. It was them stepping a, a foot forward. I think some would say their last great album. I guess I would probably say that. I wouldn't. <laughs> Why? You and I have a different opinion of uh, Seasons of the Abyss. It, oh, wait a minute. You like Seasons of the Abyss more than I do. Yeah, I do. Yes. You and Zoller. Zoller is I a love, and, and Nathan yeah. Sapp. You're all crazy. Whatever. You're all crazy. That's a, that's a 50%er for me. The 50% like war ensemble, man, you can't yeah. touch that. No. Anyway, well, let's not belabor our differences here, but you know, they're, they're few and far between. That's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do a point counterpoint in season of the abyss. One. Maybe. That okay. Would be fun. Maybe. Okay. So this, yeah. So we're leaving the most kind of what I think is the most interesting and crucial era of the Glenn Danzig story. I think it's a fascinating time for him and the evolution. I hope we made the point. We'll move on to the cult. Yeah. So, um, band fronted by Ian Asprey, they began life as Southern death cult. I guess there's some misconceptions about them. Maybe not. Uh, anyone who's dug a little more deeply knows their origins. Um, but I, I think they are perceived largely as a, you know, a rock with a capital R band. Hmm. They began life as a sort of a post-punk goth band and then um, uh, evolved from there into more of a psychedelic post-punk sort of sound that's evidenced on the album Love. Um, we're going to play a clip from that. And then they um, they are seduced by Rick Rubin and brought into his fold, and um, he does a number on their sound. <laughs> they, oh, yeah. And I would say the contrast between Love and Electric is as stark as that between Hello Waits and Rain and Blood. Really, um, I, I and I want to say I want just to issue as a caveat: I'm not a huge fan of Electric. Okay, um, I'm I'm not. It's it's essentially an ACDC record. Not as good as an ACDC record. If you didn't say ACDC, I was going to, but that, okay. that's really where that album aimed. I'll tell you what, let's AB both of these two. Let's play them okay. back, back. All right, fair enough. This is All Rain, right. and then we'll follow up with Love Removal Machine.
So you have just heard the most explicitly rock thing you will ever hear on this podcast. <laughs> Fair to say, right, Jeff? Yeah, until the Kiss show. <laughs> there won't be a Kiss show. There will be a Kiss show. Oh, God, people, this man's love of Kiss is, it defies reason. But, but, but here's I, I, dude, your, your Kiss collection is bigger than some people's record collection. I've cut it down a little bit. Yeah, well, I've, got, I've gotten reasonable. Same thing with Paul Chain. You know. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> you got to be reasonable with Paul Chain, man. <laughs> I mean, look, I love Paul Chain, but Me too. Know, there's a limit. No, I hear you. <laughs> no, no, but, but, but here's the thing. One, one of the bands that bonded us early was Kiss, because that's always yeah. such, a, such a sticking point for so many people. It is. Um, and I, I have a lot of friends who love great music, and they just hate Kiss. And that's so weird. A lot of, I think like, people's instinctive move is to hate Kiss. But you, you like None them. None of my I mean, friends like Kiss. You Steve, like them a lot. Like Alive turned you on. That's still one of your favorites, right? It's like one of the greatest live records ever. Yeah, big fan up to everything, to Creatures of the Night. Right. And, and some stuff later, too. Sure, absolutely. But, absolutely. But, like, I, but, I, but I'm really into like the, the early stuff. Of course. That's the best. The, you know, that that's core four line. I mean, and the box set, man. Like, it's got <laughs> some amazing early stuff on it. Yes. They were on fire and super hungry when they were early. Yes. Let's get back to the cult, though. I hope everybody okay, didn't mind the, the Kiss cult. diversion. I, and I'll say, look, my favorite cult record. So I'm not a big fan of Electric. I actually think it's kind of a, a failed attempt um, to make them sound like ACDC. Well, I'm glad you said that. I'm not a fan either. This is, yeah. This and, is. And, and I think they're a much more, I think they're a much more nuanced and, and deeper and special special band than that mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe he was a little I don't think he was I don't think he was off base commercially because it was a, a big hit sure um, but like they the next record Sonic Temple is a, a much more much more developed record it, it gives them a lot more room to breathe and I think the the effects better my favorite cult record is actually from 2001 it's called uh, Beyond Good and Evil okay uh, and I think it's just a fantastic record I still listen to it regularly yeah, I'm not a big fan. I but I remember uh, having friends, of course, that loved them, and you do. And and when Sonic Temple came out, I remember being impressed on a on a very objective level. Like, this is really cool in terms of where they went and how they expanded their sound. I think um, so. Yeah. But Ruben with Electric, I mean, as you said before, I I think it's hard to describe Electric as anything but as as anything without using the ACDC moniker. There's no way. Yeah, you can't get around it. I mean, that's exactly what they were going for, and they nailed it. They did. I mean, Ian Asbury is definitely less gritty than Brian Johnson, but I think you can see how stripped down they went. And they would probably never strip down that far again. Oh, ever. No, no, not yeah. at all. Speaking of stripping down, let's go right to Chicago's Trouble. This band. is huge for both of us. I know this band yeah, along with band near and dear to our hearts. Yeah, very much. Uh, when I first heard Trouble as a 15-year-old getting into, you know, not only thrash and early black metal, but like Fate's Warning and uh, Voivod and Agent Steel and all the things that were around at the time, I remember hearing Trouble and just hating it. I, I listened to The Skull and I just couldn't connect. Um, <laughs> it was really 1987's Run to the Light that I kind of started to get it and then go back and love it. And then they came out with the Rick Rubin produced 1990 album. So what we want to do again is listen to Trouble's pre-Rubin stuff. We're going to listen to Born in a Prison from 1987's Run to the Light. And then we're going to jump to Trouble's Black Shapes of Doom from the self-titled 1990 album. And then we'll discuss.
So I think the Troubles 1990 album, it's one of those that ought to be self-titled. And they had a self-titled one as their first album back in 84. And that totally made sense as well. But this was kind of a new era for them. And this to me, along with probably Rain of Blood, is my favorite Ruben thing. Because he really did take a band that really needed him and were ready for him and just made them into what they were in 1990 and really resulted in what I feel is a perfect album. It's a perfect album. It's actually gotten better for me. Yeah. Um, I, I had something of a, a rediscovery. I mean, I, I don't know how I could possibly rediscover this record. I've, I I'd probably heard it a hundred times, but it's never sounded any more powerful to me than it did this last little cycle. And what do you, do you attribute Ruben to some of that? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just the, the tightness of the arrangements and the playing, it's certainly the, I mean, I don't feel like Trouble gets enough credit for their hooks. This right. is a very catchy record. Yep. And again, the, the drumming is just spot on. Like the, the foundation of this record is as solid as they come. Yep. It, could use a, it could use a remaster. I think that bears to you saying. Um, it's a quiet record. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, that's no fault of anyone's, really. But yeah, I mean, really, though, like very few records would I consider perfect. I think this is a perfect record. Yeah, and, and Ruben went on to do Manic Frustration with them as well, also a Deaf American al- album. I don't know if it was American yet at the time, but anyway, that's also a really, really good album. It's a very good album. It might even be more diverse than uh, the song. Oh, no, it absolutely is. I don't think they so. start to like explore their psychedelic side on that. Record. For sure. I just don't think sonically it matches up. It's a little trebly. It's a little bit high end for me. Yeah, it, 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 ten, yeah, Tenny. Yeah. It's a tweeter buster sometimes if you it, want yeah. to play it loud. And that's why the self-title just sounds so good. It's, well, yeah. And I don't think it's a stronger record material-wise. No, but it's good. It's got... It's, it's very good. It's got some great moments. But Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very happy that Ruben got involved with Chicago's Trouble. I mean, there's just no doubt about that. So when Hunter and I were planning on doing this, we were on the phone, I think, I remember, and we were looking at Ruben's complete discography, which is just, as we mentioned earlier in the program, like really formidable. I mean, he's worked with everybody, even bands we think are terrible. But to get the Ruben touch is a very special thing. But we were looking at this list on Wikipedia, and they need to be called out on this because it lists God the Throne's Toxic Touch as one of his production credits. It doesn't list it as an executive credit or like a remix or anything. It just lists him as producer. And we looked at that. We were like, what? Of all the bands. Especially in 2006 when he's working with like Dixie Chicks and, and who the, you know, Johnny Cash and like God to Throne got him. Like, <laughs> really? You know, so it, it, it stumped us. And in preparation, in the two weeks of preparation for this episode, or just, I think we talked about it two weeks ago, I found out that that's just a bunch of crap and it's some misinformation on Wikipedia, at least as far as I can determine. Like, I don't have that album. I don't, I didn't follow that band that far, but no official credits for that album list him as producer. No, <laughs> go figure. No. What, what it could have been God to throne might've been like behemoth big at least. Right. Yeah. Or not. Mm, and probably not even that big. <laughs> really? Anyhow. And I'm with you. I, I, after bloody blasphemy, I kind of fell off and I mean, I just, I don't listen to them at all anymore, really. But. Kind of same here. Yeah, they were a band that I really enjoyed for a while. But Yes, um, yeah, I did too. Yeah. As you like, get older, you realize. Yeah. Actually, you're the reason I got into God to Throne. So. Well, that's, and it's weird that we both don't really care for them that much anymore. But I think that's more that thing of like getting older and going, okay, wait a minute. I'm going to die like way too soon. And I can only <laughs> listen to, I can only listen to too many things. 
uh, you know, and also try to have a life outside of music. So I think God to Throne was something I just sort of put to the side because of yeah. the mortality yeah. thing. <laughs> right. It's not your fault, God to Throne. It's that yeah, we're going right. to die. No. They're a perfectly yeah. good band, you know. They are, they're, they're a, they are a very good band. Now, speaking of a band will take to the grave, both of us, the Mars Volta. No, I, I want deloused in my coffin. <laughs> I, want to, I want to be cremated, so it's kind of beside the point, but I want it burned with me. You got it, man. Yeah. Vinyl or CD? Yeah, it doesn't matter. I hope I'm I not there for that day, but if I am, my friend, I will make that happen. Please, Jeff, okay. please. So, <laughs> <laughs> this took a turn. Yeah, we, we, we've gotten quite morbid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mars Volta makes us feel really good. So, let's talk about. You know, we're jumping ahead now. Like we, you know, we were in the mid to late 80s, early 90s there with Trouble and Cult and Slayer and all that. And um, here we are in the early 2000s and Rick Rubin's done a lot of different stuff. He gets a hold of this band, Mars Volta. And where do they come from? Like, what's their deal? So they came out of a band called At The Drive-In. Great band in their own right. They um, had their last record. It's produced by Ross Robinson. It's called Relationship of Command. Um, I would recommend it to anyone who's into um, sort of the outer reaches of the the Discord uh, post-punk spectrum. And then uh, they actually, like, so oh, Omar and Cedric have a, uh, a history of dissolving bands and forming new ones and those morphing into other things. After At The Drive-In, they, um, they formed a kind of dub, I don't know what else to call it, like an experimental dub rock band called De Facto that eventually morphed into the Mars Volta. And so they, um, they released an EP called uh, Tremulant. It's quite good, actually. It, it was weird for me because I did not get into them with Tremulant. I actually got in, I, I discovered them with D-Last and the Comatorium, which is the Rick Rubin uh, produced full length that came out in 2003. Same. And it's like within my top three records of all time. It's like everything that I want to hear in music on, in one place. I mean, I might as, this is a good spot for us to say that the Mars Volta is the first band we've ever repeated on a short history of radical research. Yes. You know, yes, for, it for is. For those of you that give a shit. And like, I remember like when you and I got this record, like within a, cause neither one of us got it exactly when it came out. Sure. And I remember Matt Johnson saying that it was his record of the year. Yep. And you, you emailed me and I, I did a little research and I was like, Oh, you know, I'm a, at the drive-in fan. How did I not know about this? And we both got it. And it was like, I mean, we listened to other things naturally, but it was like the focus of our listening for like, what, like three months. I least. think it's like probably, I, I mean, I, I'm guessing and I don't want to make too, put too fine a point on it, but I wonder if it's like people discovering like that first King Crimson album in 69, like, Oh, there's a lot of great stuff around right now. Right. But this, this is like, this a- is it. This is the watershed. We were like living for it. Yeah. I mean, I remember I, it was, I like, still do. I, st- I oh, think I it's one of the so best do albums. I, so of- do I. But yeah. I mean, dude, I, I remember like just, I didn't want to hear anything else because I didn't need to hear anything else. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was like, yeah, you pushed every button. It did every, it still does. As you say. Yeah. Anyway. So like, I, I guess we both went back to Tremulant. It, it, it's, it's really, really good and really interesting, but it is, I mean, it's nascent. It's a band that's still discovering itself. Yep. And um, I guess, you know, maybe we should play something from Tremulant. Yeah, let's listen to Eunuch Provocateur. <laughs> <laughs> 
Always a band with some fantastic titles. And that's I a, love a good Unic Provocateur, by the way. That's almost a disorder. Well, the Unic Provocateurs ran away with the choir. <laughs> the Hermaphrodite choirs? Yeah, I think they ran away They're with it, if I'm now. not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. But this missing. is the Unic Provocateur from Mars Volta. So that's a formative Mars Volta in 2002. And then for their full length in 2003, they hooked up with Rick Rubin. And I would argue that the Laos and the Comatorium isn't quite as Rubenized as the other albums we've featured tonight. No. He gives them a pretty wide berth compared to a lot of other bands. I would say so. He doesn't snip them away because a lot of that kind of manic, fusion-y, crimson-y stuff that we heard in Unic Provocateur uh, was all over the Laos and the Comatorium. Sure. But it was, it was still a more focused and honed Mars Volta, right? And the, the album they did after this, not to jump too far ahead, but Francis the Mute, no Ruben, and it's all over the place. Yeah, no, it's, it's like one of the most uncensored records ever. <laughs> yeah. But, so, I, you know, I think that he, um, I think that Ruben, like, recognized what's special about Omar and, like, you know, like, kind of played to his strengths and gave him some latitude because, like, yeah, Omar obviously needs that. Yeah. But it's like, you know maybe we cut it down to like 30 seconds of crickets, you know? Right. <laughs> Versus three minutes. <laughs> and we're going to play, it, it's tough to choose the snippet. Of course, I know what Delouse means to me, but I, I know even probably better what it means to you. And you picked this snippet, why Area Tarka versus anything else on the album to, to show kind of the Rubenized Mars Volta. I, I was living in North Carolina at the time 
And I remember getting out of class and like I said, Jeff and I had been talking about this record. Friends of ours were into this record. And so I drove to, to Best Buy and I, I picked it up and I like Best Buy was like 20, 25 minutes from my house. And so, um, I was like kind of riding around listening to it and taking it in. I was just like super pumped about it. But then the, like the chorus of area Tarka came on and it like everything just kind of snapped into place. And it, it, to me, it like, it, I didn't think about this consciously at the time. I think about it now, but like, it was so just laser focused. It was so hooky. Like, and I mean, the, the album is just this, you know, this reservoir of psychedelic sounds and textures and everything. But like Area Tarka, is just like a, a punch in the face. It's, it's got such direct hooks. It's got such a, like a powerful rhythm section, which actually um, another Ruben connection, Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers played bass on this album. Um, and Ruben worked very directly with uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers um, at various times in their career. So anyway, I, I picked Area Tarka because like, I mean, the rest of, I mean, the, the entire album is strong. I mean, anyone who's heard it, I mean, the, the record is, it's another, it's another <laughs> perfect record in my mind. Yeah. Um, objectively, maybe not so because it does have some loose ends, but I, I think it's amazing. You just want it the way it is because I do. Yeah, it, it, everything it's it gives the way you. It is, exactly. It gives you so much. It's its ideal shape. Yep. Um, but but this song is kind of compressed compared to a lot of the other stuff on this record. I guess you could argue the same thing for uh, Inertiatic ESP. That remains my favorite, actually. I think it's the yeah. most filled and powerful and punchy thing. And, you know, really, it's it's the opening of the record after that awesome little intro. Yep. And it, for me, it's the most memorable because of that, because it was my intro and my complete wallop immediately of like, I freaking love this band. I'm yes. only a song in and this is it. I mean, this is yep. the stuff, you know, and, and it just kept going. This one was the one for me. Yeah. This was, I mean, I obviously loved all of it before, but when I, this song came on, I, I just remember like jerking my steering wheel. Well, I'll tell you what, let's talk more rock. Let's go. <laughs> Always a good rule of thumb. <laughs>
I don't know. There's a lot more that, that can be said about that that you didn't already say. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Mr. John Theodore. Yes. Yes. Again, well, and here we go. We, we, Rick with, Rubin with, and drums. Actually, I'm, I'm kind of, I hadn't thought about this before, but like Rick Rubin and his involvement in the early hip hop scene. What's early hip hop about? It's about the beat. Rhythm. It's about yeah. It's about rhythm. It's about drums. Like yeah. so, it kind of makes sense that that shaped him. Oh, total. No, totally. That's what I was saying with postmortem. It was just, it's so yeah. focused on that drum beat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Metronomic yeah. And, and kind of hypnotic and aggressive and really forms the basis and that, that initial kind of primal, like, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Right? Primal is the perfect word. Yeah. The same thing that like excites some people about that early hip hop is that, Oh my God, this is getting to the gut. This is just speaking right to the gut. There's, there's not much brain about it. There's a little bit of heart, but it's mostly just gut. Totally. Gut reaction. Yeah. Okay. Primal is the perfect word for it. So in 2003, not, <laughs> I hate to trivialize it this way. I don't know if you'll be shocked or if you already know this, but Rick Rubin also did a Limp Biscuit record that year. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. And it kind of saddens me. Actually. Sorry, man. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess I say that to kind of illustrate Rick Rubin was pretty much done with sort of finding these maverick metal bands who were sort of on a cult level like Slayer, like Samhain. Sam Hain, like trouble, and then like taking them into the mainstream. He plucked them out of cult status and put them into the mainstream, basically. I'd agree. So, you know, he's kind of stopped doing that by the 2000s. I think he got so famous for all the other stuff he'd done, plus these, these things and others. You know, he was, he, was, he was doing kind of sure bet sort of stuff in the 2000s, like Metallica and Black Sabbath. I'm not a fan of Death Magnetic. I pretty much actively dislike 13 by Black Sabbath. <laughs> and, that, and they're one of my favorite bands of all time. If not number one, I think we both worship Iomi on a sick, sick level. Obviously. Uh, and then he was doing stuff like Dixie Chicks and Lady Gaga. So it, it's, it's kind of weird the, the trajectory his career took. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I guess after a while, yeah, he kind of maybe lost interest in, in discovering and reshaping bands and just kind of started producing bands. Yeah. Um, in a in a more conventional way, and I think it bears saying. I mean, there's a there, there's a long stretch of time between Rain and Blood and De Last in the Comatorium. Sure. So I mean, he he kept up his verve for a long time. Oh yeah. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. There's no doubt about that. But like that, you know, his early period and the way you know the way that he was thinking about the, what he saw in bands. I think. I mean like you say, low hanging fruit. I mean, a lot of these bands were already kind of like established and they already had kind of core sounds. But the the thing that makes Ruben's early period so interesting is that he was taking these bands that were kind of in developmental stages and he identified things within them, um, these kind of kernels and he took them and he developed them. And I mean, I, I think that's what makes him so, you know, crucial to uh, recent rock music history. Yeah, well said. I mean, and let's let's go back to Mars Volta just for a second, only because it's uh, that's Gincor. Uh, see episode ten if you don't know what we're talking about. So he was he was crucial also in the production team of Coheed and Cambria's No World for Tomorrow. It was Rick Rubin and Nick. I can never say his name. Uh, Raskalunich. Uh, yeah. Also known for working with Rush amongst other bands, and also we can't forget that I'm not. We're not totally trashing his 2000s era. I mean, he worked with Johnny Cash, and I think he took Johnny Cash from a certain level into a more contemporary level. In the well, and then he did that in the 90s. He did that. Well, he started in the 90s, but he continued working with Cash. Yeah, yeah, sure. But like, like, yeah. 
Yeah, they formed a like pretty much, you know, a partnership that would last until Cash's death. Absolutely. And, yeah. And I think that's something really what, what does I mean, what does that say about Rick Rubin? Well, I mean, and, and yeah, I wouldn't that, work with Johnny. I mean, like Johnny Cash could work with anyone. Sure. I mean, that's exactly my point is that yeah, like, you know, if, if Johnny Cash will accept him and, and kind of like understand that he's helping him get to yet another level at the very <laughs> end of his career, I mean, that's pretty special. Pretty so, damn special. Yeah. No, you know, no matter what I, we might think of Black Sabbath 13 or whatever, like all, all respect to Rick Rubin. We thought it would be fun to end this episode with a little bit of uh, what if. There's certainly albums and bands out there that we kind of wish Rubin would have got his claws into at the right times. I asked Hunter to come up with four uh, bands and albums that he thought Ruben should have touched. And then I'll give my four as well. So you want to talk about yours? Yeah. So um, Jeff actually kind of initiated this. And I thought it was a really brilliant idea. And it was it, like, I was a little intimidated by it because I mean, I, I had to kind of comb through most of my collection to consider this. So like, yeah, I mean the, the, the thrust of Jeff's idea was like, you know, bands that we all, that we, that we love, um, but made sort of unwieldy moves, like, like unfocused albums that we really feel like Rick Rubin could have honed in and, and turned into something like really, truly great. So anyway, first band Melvin's, um, 1994, they could release Stoner Witch, amazing record. One of their best records, I think. I wish that Rick Rubin had worked with them on 1996's Stag, <laughs> uh, which begins amazingly. And then just kind of with the Melvins, it's hard to say. It's relative there, with the Melvins. You want it them is. To, yeah. You want them to go to different places and have the bottom fall out sometimes. It's just right. part of the deal. And there's an element of antagonism too. Yeah. yeah. And you never really know where they are. But I, anyway, I wish that Rick Rubin had worked with them on Stag. I feel like he could have really turned that into a masterpiece. Completely um, agree. And if not Stag, then Honky, because Honky's a real mess. Honky, like, yeah. But oh, you wonder man. if they even had... Honky's got some amazing stuff on I love, I love Honky. I've really come to terms with it, and I love more of it than I used to. Uh, I just think I, I just I think you're right in saying you know the Stoner Witch Stag thing, because Stag had the material that could have been honed even yeah. brighter and better. Yep. So agreed. Uh, next one. Enslaved. I wish that he'd worked with them on vertebrae. So vertebrae to me after like, cause rune rune was kind of lateral move from Issa. The first um, lateral move they ever made. I think ever, ever, which was kind of unsettling at the time. Sure. Cause I, you know, I'd been with enslaved since the beginning and like, that was one of, it was kind of like, I guess for someone who had, you know, in the eighties had been with Voivod and, and, you know, had awaited their next step because you knew that every record would be different. Yeah. I had that sort of anticipation with enslaved. I'd been with them um, since frost and they always surprised me. And so when rune came out, it's really, um, I, I like rune, uh, but it was a little disappointing to hear how little they progressed when mm -hmm. vertebrae came out. It was, it was almost like they were finally making uh, an effort to kind of pare down everything and, and, and write, more concise songs. I feel like Rick Rubin would have been a, a real benefit to that band at the time. Also, and, and Jeff and I share this opinion. We, um, it, it, you know, at this stage in, in Slave's career, don't necessarily agree with the necessity of the extreme vocals. We think that maybe they had a little outstayed their welcome at this time. Yeah. And, you know, they could do more interesting things, you know, newer things with clean vocals. I think Rick Rubin personally would have promoted that. Yeah, probably. I think I think Vertebrae is a real good call there. 
I would have liked to seen him after Issa simply because we wouldn't have gotten a lateral move. We could have That's gotten right. Rune uh, in its most focused form. But I think Vertebrae is just a better out material-wise, so it makes it all the sense in the world to hand that to somebody like Ruben and see what could be done. Sure. So, uh, we, stay, we stay in Norway. We do, as we, as, as we do often. <laughs> <laughs> Next record, Leprous. After Cole, I would love for Ruben to have worked with them on the congregation. Congregation um, is just almost a wealth of good material that needs to be honed. I, I think I totally agree. Yeah. If you put it down on any single track, you're like, oh, this is great. But it's just, it's a lot of the same. It is. Yeah. It, well, and the problem is it's all Einar. And, and I love Einar. We yeah. both do. Yep. The guy's a, a tremendous talent, but I feel like he's got his hands too deeply into this. Okay. And he's calling too many of the shots. I feel like Rick Rubin could have removed him from that and made the album as a, as a whole much better. I would agree with that. I think that's a great call. Uh, you know what's interesting, though? Uh, Melina comes next, and then, then yes. you're like, oh, okay, they didn't need Ruben. They did it themselves. Yes. It's, it's the Ruben album I, without Ruben. I hate to say it. Melina's my favorite Leprous record. Uh, so I never you, thought oh, anything oh. would overcome bilateral. But oh, Melina so you've, you've overcome bilateral, too. I did pretty early with Melina, but it, but I've, and I've told other Leprous fans, including you, that that was the case. And it was like, ah, I think it'll always be bilateral for me, but no, bilateral is not as perfect. There, Melina has just about everything it should and not it much does. extra. And it does. Perfect. Yeah. Let's move on. Let's go to Sweden. Right. La- la- <laughs> Let's just go over one country. Of course. So final one, Entombed. I wish that Rick Rubin had worked with them on to ride, shoot straight, and speak the truth. You and I, I, I think that I like this record more than you do, right? Yes, I, re- I listened to it earlier this year for the first time in years, and I thought I always keep it. I always, every every time I go to listen to it, I'm like, I might be getting rid of this, you know, this copy. I don't think you can. I don't. I, there's enough on it that I like. I love Nicky Anderson's drumming so much that I'll keep it for that reason alone. I don't think I think LG is pretty useless at this point. But good riffs, you know. And Lots of good riffs. But I think that I think the album meanders. I think it's too long. Absolutely. I, think, I completely I, agree. Yeah, I think that it forgets what makes it badass at certain points. Yep. And I feel like Rick Rubin would have identified those things and said, guys, cut the fat. This is what we're going to do. And I think if he had done that, it would be an amazing record. I think it would be a, an amazing record. I think it would be a lateral step from Wolverine. Because Wolverine, if you think about it, kind of like Melina with Leprous, that's sort of a Ruben-esque album anyway. Right. Just it bone, is. All, the, all the fat just stripped off to the bone, and it's just 10 short, punchy songs, short album. That's, it's really Rubenized without, of course, Ruben being part of it. And I feel like we would have got the same thing with To Ride, which would have been better than the To Ride that actually exists. Right? But I feel like there was a lot more rock and punk in, in tune by this point. So I think that we would have gotten a record that had the kind of the same effect as Wolverine Blues, but would have been a different record than Wolverine Blues. Yet, yet another step away from death metal, basically. Correct. I wish I wouldn't have come up with this exercise because now I really want these albums. And they, <laughs> yeah, well, these albums are huge disappointments now. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so for my All stuff, right. the first one that came to mind for me when I started thinking about how this could be, like let's, let's think about what we'd like Ruben on. For some reason, it was Pentagram. I would, I would have liked them to come in after Day of Reckoning because um, I like that album a lot. It's, it's, it's not a mess, but it's, you know, it's, it's messy. Not, not completely focused. I think they go on a little too long in spots and they don't understand like what the best moments are and what could be dragged out and what should have been snipped. So, 
you know, and given his time with trouble, if you kind of place it in the time, I, I think his experience with trouble could have helped Pentagram have an even better result with Be Forewarned. Totally. That's the album I, I wish was Rubenized. That's, that thing has so many great moments, but it's, you can tell they're just kind of laying it all out and it's not really focused. They don't, they couldn't figure out a running order. So they just kind of threw it all there. And I'd like to hear like a trimmed and more muscular and more impactful Be Forewarned. So would I. Uh, the, the next one was Beardfish, uh, the great prog rock band from Sweden. For me, in my estimation, one of the better newer progressive rock bands of the age. They're already broken up. But I mean, think about it. They, they had a zillion amazing ideas and they produced really awesome albums on their own. But under Ruben, I feel like he could have like honed them into this kind of gentle giant queen rush territory that they were always kind of like playing around with, but never totally got to. And I would want him to come in after Destin Solitaire. That thing was a hot mess in the best possible way. It's a great album though. No, it's, yeah. it, it is, but you know what I mean by a hot mess. It's just, oh, it is, yeah. it's not honed at all. It's a little ideas. bit. Yeah. 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 It's a little bit Francis the mute in a sense. So I just feel like, a, like he could have given them more purpose and that would have been mammoth. Cause then mammoth came out and there's something about mammoth that I just don't find. I don't feel like they were that in, inspired on it. So I think Ruben could have kicked them in the butt yeah. on that one. Uh, the next one is minus the bear. And I think I would have, I think I'd want Ruben to come in with minus the bear, like right now after voids, because voids is good, but it's a a total lateral step. There's nothing on it that they haven't done better before, but there's a lot of great moments. I just, Oh yeah. I actually prefer voids to infinity. Okay. Okay. Uh, But, but I will say this, those are both lateral steps. This is true from Omni. I mean, since Omni, I mean, they've kind of been on the same thing. Right. Yeah, so that, that would have been cool, but unfortunately, Planet of, the Ice, is, Planet of Ice has more teeth to it, I think. Well, Planet of Ice is, gets proggy near the end there. Planet of Ice is my favorite, minus the bear. Oh, interesting. Okay, I'm not sure what mine is. Probably Omni. But yeah, so, so I would like to hear what he could do with current day minus the bear. Oddly enough, I'd like him to tease out some of the more progressive and experimental aspects that they seem to kind of be holding in. I'm not sure if Ruben would be the right guy for that, but somehow it seems to me that maybe he would, but that's not going to happen because they're breaking up and putting out a final EP and Hunter's crying because that's one of your favorite bands from the last couple of decades, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 For, I mean, in the, like the, I kind of discovered Mars Volta and minus the bear about the same time. And I, I've, yeah, those have been probably my two favorite current bands. And my so, final one, I, I kind of realized that I love, and here we go. Voivod always a reference. I think almost every episode, <laughs> Somehow we make it happen. Um, but I feel like Ruben could have come in in the 2003 era uh, when Newstead, Jason Newstead was the bassist. I love the self-titled. I, I, I have a couple problems with it that make it sort of less than great for me. But I'll always defend that album. And I think that he could have honed that into the masterpiece that's in there. Yeah. That's probably of my four picks, the one I'd pay the most to hear. Yeah, I... I like that record and I do think it's got a lot of great stuff on it, but I'm, I'm not as, I'm not as keen on it as you are. You would be if Rick Rubin had produced it. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> probably. <laughs> because why we're going there. Um, anything else you want to say about Rubin? Thank you for your good work, sir. Thank you for your service.
So for episode 14, Jeff and I are going to be delving into the contentious duo of records by Sweden's Candlemas. And of course, we're talking about um, 1998's Dactylus Glomerata and 1999's Amazing from the 13th Sun, which I think it bears mentioning now is my second favorite Candlemas record. <laughs> um, the, these records are loved by some, hated by most. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think Jeff and I are going to make a convincing case for both of them, and we would like you to join us. They're kind of considered the lost Candlemas albums, but I think in both of our households, we find them pretty often, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're never lost in this house, I can tell. Fuck you. the world. <laughs> Trading the drama of stellar salvation from far, far away. The ship is in orbit, circling the oceans. They creep love and ferment between the sun and earth. And the bird queen. I tell you that I actually got banned from a jukebox. We were uh, we we were, play, we were playing darts one night, and like every, they were just they kept playing like um, what's that one song? Strawberry wine, and like somebody played some Jimmy Buffett stuff. Oh, it God. was one of those internet jukeboxes, so it had basically everything available. <laughs> I played the first half of Day Mysterious. <laughs> and, and literally, the bartender shut me down. He's like, no, no, Hunter. People won't come in here. Oh my god! <laughs> if, I, if I get close to the jukebox, she's like Hunter. <laughs> nope. I can't top that. But the the closest that I ever got to like a weird public music thing was uh, being in a, in a uh, strip club in Iowa City, where a friend of mine worked as a bouncer, and I would go and he'd let me in for free, and they'd you know give me you know a few drinks free. It was cool, you know, like. And I was never a strip club guy at all. Like, right. Yeah. Not my not my thing. I women are beautiful and they're awesome, but not not that way. So, um, he was cool. You know, I didn't have a problem with it either. You know, not not right. rude. Anyway, there was a dancer up there. And my friend Mike was really into Candlemas Nightfall at the time, and he put on Samaritan. <laughs> he put on Samaritan, and it just was so out of sync and out of place and out of time and dude that's amazing it does not that does not work in a strip club can i just tell you as right many now? times as i've listened to that song <laughs> i've never once thought about somebody stripping to it dude that's one incredible. day i saw a man <laughs> like, 